Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From their studio in the Feeding Arizona building in Youngtown, Arizona, it's the Boomer and the Babe Show with Pete Peters and Deborah Brown. Join Pete and Deborah and their guests as they give voice to 78 million baby boomers from coast to coast and border to border. Now here are the Boomer and the Babe, Pete Peters and Deborah Brown. And welcome to the Boomer and the Babe Show. It is 11 o'clock in Arizona, 10 o'clock on the east, uh, west coast and 1 o'clock on the east coast. And uh, we're enjoying a nice day over here in Arizona after three days of rain in Arizona, which is something we don't often see, but we were glad to have it, and now we're glad that it's gone. It doesn't take us long to get tired of wet weather here in Arizona when we're tired when you're used to living in the desert. Uh, all that having been said, I want everybody, if you would please, to go to boomerthebabe.com, sign up for our mailing list, and you will be receiving our online magazine, which is Boomer Experience Speaks. You're welcome to do so. It's absolutely free, and it comes every four to six weeks into your inbox, and it appears like magic because of the Internet machine. And that uh, is something else that we'd like to let everybody know, that we do more than just this radio show. We do some publishing of e-books and mini-books, and we also have our new golf show that we do on a regular basis. It's called Straight Down the Middle. And it is on Thursdays at 9 o'clock, and this next week we will be having some special broadcasts of Straight Down the Middle from the Phoenix Open, home of the 16th hole, the big stadium complex there that they've built around the 16th hole. Uh, we were out there last Wednesday and doing a tremendous uh, event with uh, with the people from Golf Mix that we have an affiliation with, and Aaron Oberholzer, who is a PGA professional, Everybody trying to beat Aaron's shot to the 16th hole, and it was a lot of fun. I had a great day in 80-degree temperatures here in Arizona. All that having been said, we hope that you will be able to go and listen to our shows from TPC uh, on and off the rest of this week. And that is, as I said, blogtalkradio.com slash slash straight down the middle golf show. So uh, take a listen to that if you get the opportunity. On to today's guest, however, for the Boomer the Babe show. Her name is Michelle Whitlock, and she is an author. She wrote the book, How I Lost My Uterus and Found My Voice, uh, a provocative title to say the least. Michelle, welcome to the Boomer the Babe show. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I, you and I were having some discussions prior to going on uh, on the air, and um uh, we're going to get into the book and uh, everything that's happened and so on and so forth. But prior to doing that, if Deborah were here, she would ask you for your two-minute movie. So if you would, please tell us a little bit about Michelle Whitlock prior to our conversation that we're going to be having today. Absolutely. Well, you know, most like most young people, I was in my 20s, and I had, um, for me, I 
have been at the same job, um, day job, for 20 years. So I started when I was 17, and I worked my way up in the company, but I was also um, getting a degree in organizational management, and I had just started a new romance um, about six months before what we're going to talk about, and um, I met this handsome waiter the last day I was on vacation, and uh, we exchanged numbers, and before you knew it, I was having a long-distance romance, and work was going great, climbing the career ladder. I was in great health, had been lifting weights every day, and you know, I thought I was on top of my game until I heard those words, you have cancer. Well, I've fortunately never had to listen to those words as it was directed towards me. Uh, what happens when you hear those words? You know, I really describe it as if you think of your brain as a radio and somebody just took the radio and threw it into the bathtub and short circuits it. I mean, I remember for me, even though I was at the hospital and they were saying they needed to get a bigger sample and, you know, do a biopsy, they had never used the word cancer and I they didn't even allude to that's what they were looking for, but somebody left my chart. Um, laying down in the room, and, you know, doctors act like that's top secret stuff. So I was dying to get in it and see what it said, and I saw the words suspicious for malignancy. And it was right then that it was like my brain just short-circuited. Malignant, benign, malignant, benign. I couldn't process the words. I didn't know what it meant. And I remember looking at my sister and being like, what does malignant mean? And it wasn't that I didn't know the word. It was just you know, you can't put it in context with yourself. And I saw the blood drain out of her face, and it was in that moment that I knew I had cancer. Uh, now, the 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 form of the disease uh, that you had, the form of the cancer that you had, was, was it a rapid-spreading disease? No. Actually, um, I had cervical cancer, diagnosed at the age of 26, and suffered a reoccurrence at 29, and um, science today and, and medicine says that cervical cancer, for the most part, is a slow-growing cancer. It is not a hereditary cancer. It is caused by a virus, and um, I know we're going to talk about that virus. And um, so there are it's the most preventable cancer that there is out there today. I just, unfortunately, was not one of the lucky ones and, you know, learned about it the hard way. If it is a preventable cancer, how can it be prevented? Well, the first part is to know that it's caused by a virus, and the virus is the HPV, the human papilloma virus. And HPV is really a very common virus, but it is spread through sexual contact. And so there's this negative stigma, and which I think prevents people from talking about it, asking questions about it, and and even taking the precaution that they need to to protect themselves. So I want everyone to understand that it is a common virus. Eighty percent of sexually active adults will have this some form of this virus at some point during their life before the age of 50. For most of us, just like the common cold, you get it, your immune system kicks in, kicks its butt, and sends it packing. For some people, like myself, the immune system doesn't do that, and the virus persists. And when the virus persists, it can cause cancer. 
the most well-known is cervical cancer, but it's also the cause of throat and mouth cancer, vaginal, vulvar, anal, and it's even been tied to lung cancer. So it's pretty important for people to know about this. And the other piece of it is it is skin-to-skin contact. So it's not like when I was going to school, you know, we always heard about HIV and wear condoms, and but this virus is different. It's skin-to-skin contact, and a condom doesn't cover up everything. And as long as skin-to-skin in the genital area is touching, the virus can be spread. So it can be penetrative sex, it could be heavy petting, and you could be um, at risk for getting this virus. So what do you do? Right, and that at the end of the day, you want to know what what do we do? The so, first, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. I was going to say the first part is that women need to make sure they're staying on top of their gynecological appointments, and you know, especially um, for listeners here, as as for me, it used to be the annual pap. Go get your annual pap, and now guidelines have changed, and we say. Your pap should be every three years starting at the age of 21, and then at the age of 30, ask your doctor about the HPV diagnostic diagnostic test. So the pap is searching for abnormal cells. The HPV test is done in women 30 or older, and or if you have had an abnormal pap, and it's really looking for the virus itself. And so that's where we say it's preventable because detection, we have such great detection tools unlike other cancers. And then for the generation going coming up now, I mean, there's a vaccine. Wow, I wish I could have been vaccinated for HPV and, you know, helped my body to fight it. But there's a vaccine today, and it's for boys and girls ages 9 to 26. So everybody should ask their health care provider about that. Isn't there some kind of a controversy about that vaccine? Well, isn't there always with vaccines? Sure. So, so yes. So, I mean, there's there's a couple of different controversies. So one is about um, this school of thought that vaccines cause autism, and there um, was some early reporting that this vaccine caused death. Um and more recently, there have been um, studies that went back and really looked into all of those cases and showed that in all, all those cases, there were underlying health issues that maybe those people didn't even know. So the vaccine was not a cause. Yes, they got the vaccine. Yes, after the vaccine, something negative happened in their health. So it's easy for the person in that situation to say, oh, it must have been the vaccine. But um, the a medical evaluation says, no, it wasn't the vaccine, and the vaccine is safe. The other controversy is really about this school of thought that if you vaccinate your child against a sexually um, transmitted disease, are you giving your child permission to have sex? And I would tell you, no way. You put your, your When you have a child, you put your child in a seatbelt, not because you're advocating for someone to rear-end you or swipe, side-swipe you, right? You just want your child protected just in case. You buy car insurance for teenagers because you know an accident could happen. Well, as human beings, we're hardwired to want to have sex and 
to have sexual intimate contact. So it's going to happen at some point, and this vaccine works best if given before sexual contact, which is why we're targeting young young children, you know, ages 9, again, 9 to 26, but doctors really focus on the 11 and 12-year-old group. Um, and so it's a vaccine that can prevent cancer. And so I say, why would you not give that to your child? Well, there's always somebody out there. You know how that goes. Uh, that's got something to say. Um, Absolutely. It, 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 I don't care what the topic is. <clears throat> there's somebody that's going to be a naysayer and a, uh, you know, talking about voodoo and gosh knows what else. You know, <laughs> Absolutely. Looking for, a, looking for a doll to stick pins in. Uh, it, it it amazes me that um, that it can be so easily spread, and I and I and I never I can honestly say I never realized that. Um, so, so if a if a female has it and it causes cancer, the, as it did with you, yeah, uh, it could be spread by the male. Absolutely. Uh, can the male in some uh, have some form of cancer because of it? Well, yes, and so um, there is penile cancer, which can be caused by HPV, but there's only, like, it's 1% of all cancers, so it's a very small number. But mm-hmm. at the same time, um, another way to think about it is, let's say a woman has HPV and the man goes down and performs oral sex, that potentially could put HPV in his mouth and his throat, mm-hmm. and it's now tied to... Um, mouth and throat cancer. So, you know, like anything, it, it, it is spread person, you know, person to person. And so, you know, they do say a risk factor is the more sexual partners you've had. But what I want people to understand is it could be sex one time or sexual contact one time with or without a condom and you could get HPV. Now, for most of us, again, our bodies are going to fight the virus. And the immune system is a pretty amazing thing, and it is going to go away. And you're never, most people will never even know they had it. It's only when it goes on to linger and be a persistent infection that there's the risk of cancer. Uh, so it's obviously the obviously the case where, uh, in the event, in, in the case of a of a woman, a female. Yeah. Uh, she may have had uh, uh, sexual activity for the very first time, regular, uh, uh, normal heterosexual sex for the very first time, and her partner could have had heterosexual uh, activity for the very first time, and they were together. Can uh, can one of them have the uh, one of them have the virus? Well, you know. I'm not a scientist. My understanding is that um, that's the safest best next to not having sex um, and being a nun, as I heard a doctor say the other day. Um, but the safest bet is that neither one has ever had sexual contact. And I want to stress that because, you know, as we're growing up and coming into our hormones, you know, there's there's heavy petting that goes on. So, you know, if there's touching of genitals back and forth, then the virus, you know, could have been spread even though you've never had sex before. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
I would not, I'm not a, I'm a doctor, so I don't want to say absolutely you could not get it if neither one of you have ever had any sexual contact before. But that is probably the safest bet out there. Right. But if your partner, if I had never had any sexual contact and I have sex with somebody who's had one partner, I'm at risk. <laughs> and then there's there's always the possibility of, of spreading it uh, via uh, touching and so on and so forth. Yeah, because the thing to know is that HPV is a family of viruses. There's over 100 different strains. About 40 of those strains attack the genital area. And of those 40, about a handful of them are carcinogenic or cause cancer. Um, so... Even like, you know, a ward on your hand or that's that's a form of HPV. It's not a cancer causing form of HPV. But it is HPV. Hmm. What what uh how does how does a person Well, let me ask ask it this way. Uh, how did you uh come to find out that you had the disease? You, did you say that it was a it was uh, just for your normal examina- female examinations? Yeah, I went in for my, um, at the time it was an annual pap, where today, it, again, it's every three years. So I right, went in for right. my annual pap. Um, she did a pap smear. At the time, it was 2001, and the guidelines that are out today um, were not out. And um, my doctor, without telling me, with the same sample that you do a pap with, she ran the HPV test. And so a couple of days later, I got a phone call that said, your pap is normal, but you tested positive for high-risk HPV. High-risk is the cancer-causing HPV. I didn't know that at the time, though. So I was like, well, what does that mean to me? And she's like, ah, probably nothing. You know, most people have HPV. It's pretty normal, especially in 20-somethings. Um, so I'll talk to the doctor. I'll call you back. And then they called me back, and they did a colposcopy where they look at the cervix closer and they put a brush inside the cervix. And then I got a phone call that, um, you know, I got the doctor on the phone and they said, well, we're going to need a bigger sample. You need to come to the hospital. Um, And then apparently when they dilated my cervix, they could see the tumor inside. And that's when I got confirmation. I remember because I was, um, it was Christmas, I was shopping in the mall, the doctor called me and was like, can you talk? And, of course, I say yes, even though I'm in the rush of a busy mall. And I can remember sitting down as he said, you have invasive cervical cancer and you're going to need to have a hysterectomy. And it was like everyone around me stopped, like slow motion, moving, Mm. as I'm trying to process that information. Well, go ahead. I was going to say, because a radical hysterectomy meant at 26, brand new relationship, I would be infertile. Mm-hmm. And for me, I just, I didn't know that I wanted to be a mom. I really didn't. But I knew I wanted a choice. I didn't want anybody telling me I couldn't do it. Right. So I I argued with my doctors and I challenged them for other options and that that wasn't sufficient and I, you know, wrote letters to my healthcare going what else can I do and I found that there was an experimental procedure that today is widely used for early stage cervical cancer. It has great success rates. I'm just not one of them. But they're able to sever the cervix from the uterus and the vagina 
and then put clamps down there, and it allows a woman about a 50% chance of still carrying a baby to term but removing the cancer. And I signed up for that really quick. Um, and, it, again, it has great success rates. But for me, two years later, I heard those words again. Your pap is normal, but your biopsy showed invasive cervical cancer, and you're going to have to have a hysterectomy. The scary part was I had just days before gotten engaged. So here I was, within a week, the highest high with an engagement to the lowest low, cancer's back, and they want to send me to the OR. And I was like, by then I knew I wanted to be a mom. There was no way I had fought this hard and this long, and I was just going to give them my uterus. Mm -hmm. So I bartered with my doctors, and I asked for a second opinion, which was my fourth now, and I found a doctor that was willing to work with me, and so he gave me eight weeks. And in those eight weeks, I started fertility treatments. And I remember my husband today, fiancé then, was like, I don't, it's okay, I don't even think I want to be a dad, um, so this isn't that big, a, you know, from a child standpoint, wasn't as big a deal for him. And I remember saying, give me your sperm, and we will fight about it in five years. But I'm creating some embryos and having an insurance policy for our future. And so we always joke about that now because it was almost like I took, you know, had to take him hostage to get him to give me the sperm. And we froze embryos. And a few days later, we flew to Jamaica. We got married barefoot on the beach. And 10 days later, checked into the hospital, had a radical hysterectomy, all but two inches of my vagina cut out, and then chemo and radiation. Happy newlywed year. Wow. I guess. <laughs> I guess. Uh, so uh, th- that was how long ago? That um, was 2004. Okay. And uh, here you are almost probably, what, 10 years later almost, going on 10 years? Getting close. Eight and a half, yeah. And everything is peaches and cream. It's better than peaches and cream because (laughs) (laughs) it's way better. Um, I've learned so much about myself and my body. I've learned so much about my marriage and what it it can go through and has. And then I had those seven embryos, my little maybe babies and hope for the future. And after trying with two different uh, gestational carriers, a form of surrogacy, Um, My daughter was born three years ago, and she was the the last of my seven embryos, and she has taught me so much about life and love and hope. And I wouldn't have her, I would not have this specific child had I not had this battle with cancer. And so for that, I'm grateful. I, I like what you call them, your maybe babies. My maybe babies. It's like my insurance policy. Because, I mean, think about it. When you're going into surgery, you're facing chemo and radiation, and you're in your darkest hour, you got to have something to cling on to for the future, right? Mm-hmm. And right. so for me, it was those maybe babies. I had a photo of them. They just look like circles in a Petri dish but of my seven little circles that I kept with me through my cancer battle. And it was like, someday I'm going to be well enough to be your mom. Someday. 
And that that gave me, you know, the fighting power I needed. Well, you you uh you had you said you had uh had the children uh your daughter via surrogacy. Mhm. Um explain that for our for our listeners. I mean, I mean I've heard of it. I I I think I know basically what it is, but explain it for our listeners so they can uh, uh further grasp or better grasp what it really what it really means. Uh Sure. Other, other than just the what you see on some medical Movie. show at night, right. you know. <laughs> So, um, and you know, it's crazy because it's very expensive, so most of the time what we hear about are celebrities that do it. And I want women everywhere to know that even a middle-class family, you can make this happen. And so for me, um, the term that we use today is gestational carrier, and that means the woman that carries the baby has no biological connection to the child. And a lot of times when you think of surrogacy in um, the original terms of how it meant that woman was the biological mother. So in my case, the doctors used fertility drugs to stimulate my cycle, removed um, eggs from my ovaries, and in um, the laboratory they uh, fertilized them with my husband's sperm and created seven little embryos and they freeze them on day one of life. And they're just one-cell organisms. And they stay frozen until such time as you're ready to use it. So we found a woman willing to uh, help us to be parents. And you, there's contracts involved and fees and things. But at the end of the day, they give her fertility drugs to prepare her uterus for a baby and to stop her from ovulating. And then the doctor inserts my embryo, day one of life, my biological material and my husband's into her uterus. And then if you're, you know, if it works, the baby implants and and is able to grow inside this host. And she delivered my daughter. So she's biologically mine and my husband's. If you run DNA, she's all mine. But she grew inside another woman, and that is amazing. Yes, it is. I always say I'm going to explain it to my little girl like baking cupcakes. Mommy mm-hmm. got out her eggs, and she calls my husband Poppy. Poppy got out his milk, and we mixed the batter. But when Mommy went to bake the cupcakes, the oven was broken, so she had to go next door and knock on the, the neighbor's door. And she used the neighbor's oven, but when they were done, they were still Mommy's cupcakes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very well said. <laughs> that's that's cool. Um, so what what goes on in your head when you know that she, she's carrying uh, your your legacy? It's so it's such an interesting thing. I I always say that I got the unique experience as a woman to sort of experience pregnancy the way a man does. I mean, mm-hmm. think about it. As a man, you're not you know it's your child in there, and it's sort of surreal because you see this other person's stomach getting bigger and you hear the heartbeat, but it's not happening to you or your body. And so it was just a really surreal um, experience, and I knew I was preparing for a baby, but 
I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel that baby in me. And so part of me feared, will I connect to the baby? Will I, will I feel an emotional attachment to her? Um, would I not? Would she emotionally want the surrogate instead of me? And those are, so you're excited for this baby, but you have some real fears going on at the same time. And um, and then I got to do something else that most women never get to do. I got to see my child being born, right? I mean, as a woman, you're usually, you're too preoccupied with the pain and the pushing. You don't see the beauty of that. And I saw my child's head come out in her first breath, and I did feel connected immediately. And and she was mine. And it's the most beautiful moment in the entire world. Uh, I, I, um, I, you describe it very nicely. And I, and I now, what about what about the? Uh, well, I, I, I'm not going to call her a surrogate because that's not what they're gestational these, carrier. Uh, what about the gestational carrier? Where is she now in all of this? She is, um, we are very close with her. She lives about three and a half, four hours away from us, and she is a nurse. She had three children before she carried my daughter, and she's had two children since, all hers. And uh, my daughter knows her as Auntie Nell. Her name's Janelle, and uh, my daughter just knows her as Auntie Nell. And um, I welcome her presence in our life. You know, everybody's different, and lots of people don't continue their relationship with their gestational carrier. Lots of people, um, if they do, it's just in photos and letters. Um, I feel very blessed that it took three loving and caring adults to bring this child into the world. And I want my child to have all the love she can have, and so... As long as our gestational carrier wants to be a part of our lives, she is welcome. So she comes for visits a couple times a year, brings her kids, or we go visit her. Um, and she's just a really remarkable woman. It's And for me, I'd say, yes, there is some compensation involved, but what she gave me, there's no price tag on. Let's talk. Not that I want to know necessarily how much the compensation was. Well, uh, is the compensation is it is it over time or is it uh, a chunk that's paid? uh, Depends how you do it. Um, So so much upon implantation, so much you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So that's how we did. That's how. And again, it depends on how you draw up your contract with attorneys and things like that. So. Um, for us, it was a so much upon a positive pregnancy test, and because um, I did this t- two different times. The first time we had a miscarriage, so with the first one, it was so it started with a positive pregnancy test. The second time, we changed it to it. The payment started with um, confirmation of a, a live heartbeat, and then it from there on, it's divided in equal equal payments throughout the rest of the pregnancy with the final payment um, due on uh, delivery. And, again, you're not paying – I just want to be very clear. You're not paying for your baby. You're paying for time and suffering um, that this woman is going through. I mean, pregnancy is not easy, and it does, you know, a lot of stuff to a woman's body. And, 
you know, she there were certain things she wasn't able to do with her children during that year that she was focused on, you know, nurturing my child. So it's really for that that time and suffering that there's compensation. Well, it's like you're renting a room. Yeah, it's exactly like that. Uh, you know, well, while the room's being rented, there's certain things, other things that can't be done with that room, so to speak. Uh, so yeah, that's it, that was beautifully it, put. Absolutely. <laughs> it, it I actually sense. always joke. I'll sometimes take pictures of all the kids together, and I'll be like, "Look, they're womb sisters." <laughs> Because <laughs> they all came from the same womb, you know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, uh, how old are the uh, are her children, the the ones that she had prior to carrying your child? They are ten, seven, five, one, and about. I guess one's 15 months and one is newly born. So, the, but there you said there were several. There were three. Per, three born, prior, yes. Prior. Now, now those children are the ten, the seven, the five. Is and that the correct? Five, yes. Okay. So that means then, if your daughter is three, that the five was two at the time. Um, they certainly that child and and the others that are older. Uh, knew that their mother was going to have a baby. Yes. And all of a sudden your mother goes to the hospital, mother has the baby, and comes home without a baby. What were they told? Okay. So she started preparing them from the beginning. She um, read them a book about a kangaroo that um, carries, you know, there's a baby lost, and the kangaroo carries this baby around in her pocket for somebody else. Um, the whole time that she was pregnant, she referred to her um, belly as Michelle's baby. Um, this is at Mommy's baby. This is Michelle's baby. And um, I was involved with the children, so they knew who I was. And, you know, at that age, it's hard to know what they really comprehend. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were definitely told what was going on and shown pictures. And then... Um, when what was funny is that when Janelle told them that she was pregnant uh for the first time after my daughter and going to have a baby the first thing they said was mommy is this Michelle's baby or do we get to keep this baby and and it was it was funny from the point of that they they did totally understand that the first you know that my daughter wasn't part of their family um, per se, and so they thought that was kind of what was going on after that, and then we explained, no, that was actually mommy's baby, and um, and so they just take it in stride. Well, I, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I believe you. It's just that I go, wow. that's. Uh, yeah, and I, I guess, you know, it depends on how open you are, I think, with the children, but we really talked to them through the whole thing and explained every appointment and what was going on, and so I think it helps them to understand because they do come and visit, and so they do see her. Um, my little girl is Riley Greer, and so they do know where Riley Greer is, and they get updates. So it's not like this baby just poof disappeared from their lives. I see. <clears throat> so now here you are. You're in the hospital. Your your uh, uh, your friend carries this child, and it's delivered, and. Um, 
everything's everything's well, everybody's healthy, uh, and you wrap up the baby and take the baby home. Is that pretty much the way it goes? No, because the baby and, and the um, ser- gestational carrier have to spend a certain amount of time there at the hospital to make sure everything's fine. So, um, again, this is done multiple ways. Sometimes the gestational carrier has a room and then, my husband and I would be considered intended parents. The intended parents have a separate room, and the baby's brought to them. Um, we we all chose to be in a room together, and mm-hmm. so for the two days that she was at the hospital, my husband and I stayed at the hospital with her. And when there was something, the baby, you know, if there was a feeding or a changing, my husband and I did that, but we were right there in the room um, with Janelle, including her in in what we were doing. I very much wanted her to remain a part of what was going on um, and not just, oh, you've carried my baby and swoof, now we're gone. Yeah, yeah. This whole story is, is, is pretty amazing. Uh, I mean, I find it, I particularly find it amazing. But there's one thing we haven't really touched on too much, and that is, What's your husband has to do about this whole? His, what's his side of the, of the project, so to speak? Because <laughs> <laughs> he's 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 been there right along also. So uh, where is he, and how how has he gone through all of this? My husband is a really remarkable guy. He um, sees the positive in in everything. Um, he was with me through all of my cancer. Um, you know, I would go to chemo and radiation often and be in a room with other women whose husbands would drop them off. You know, sometimes you're in a chemo room. For me, it could have been, you know, a full day by the time I got all of the drugs in me. And a lot of these women were by themselves or they'd have a husband there for a little while who would leave and bring them lunch. And mine, he went with me. It was like we experienced all of this together. You know, I'd sit. He'd sit in the reclining chair, and I'd sit on his lap, and we'd talk, or watch movies, or play cards, or, you know, he'd watch me do work because I always brought work with me, and so it was really a togetherness thing. Um, I think he was very patient in us learning how to have um, sex again and, and intimate contact because, you know, when you've had surgery and radiation to that area of your body, everything changes and it's different. And he never pressured me and we talked about it and, you know, we realized it was going to take work to get back to a a healthy, um, intimate relationship. And I think talking about it really helped because, you know, we both were able to hear the point of view that the other person was coming from and not put extra pressure on each other. And then um, the baby thing, um, for a long time afterwards, he still thought he didn't want to have children. And I would have to poke and prod at him, and I used to say, yeah, well, you used to think you never wanted a serious girlfriend before you met me. And you used to say you never wanted to get married, and look at you now. You got the house with the picket fence and the two cars, and you have a real job, and... So I always kind of poked at him that you don't know what you want in the future, and so you got to keep your options open. And then one day he um, had told me, well, I think maybe around 34 might be a good age, and we were probably about 32 then. And um, I kept poking at him, and then one day he called me from a vacation, and he said, 
I've got to tell you something. And I don't know how I knew it, but I sat down and I said, oh, my gosh, you want to have a baby, don't you? <laughs> and he was like, yes, you can start looking for a surrogate. And as far as the, the pregnancy part of it, he kind of let me just handle that. In his eyes, Janelle was sort of fulfilling something I couldn't do, and it was more of my relationship with her than his. Mm-hmm. But from the second my daughter was born, he is the most devoted father. He's the kind of father that every woman wants their child to have. And he'll tell you that he was such an idiot. He had no idea how much being a parent meant or would matter to him, and he can't imagine his life without her. Well, that's uh, that's what happens to us guys. I know, right? Especially when it's a daughter. Uh, <laughs> Take it from, take it from one who knows, and then on top of it has two granddaughters. So, oh wow! Yeah, it's a, it's it's quite a female world in my life. That's for sure. Absolutely. Um, so, I get, I, I, I just, uh, I just, oh, I'm amazed. I guess is the word uh, that uh, the science, the science of this has come as far as it has. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned that there were seven embryos. Yeah. There were what two two miscarriages. One miscarriage. One one miscarriage, and then obviously one uh, one uh, went to term and everything was fine with that child. How how did you use up the embryos? So um, what they do usually is they do. Um, thaw several embryos at a time. So the first time we thawed four embryos, and they watched them in a Petri dish for three to five days for development, and each day the cells should double. Mm -hmm. And um, on the first, uh, we call it a transfer of the embryos into the gestational carrier. The first time they called me and they said, one of them is no good, it has a double nuclei, um, so we're, we can't use that. And the other three are sort of average-grade um, embryos because they rate them based off of, you know, how perfectly symmetrical the cells are and if there's, you know, fragmentations and all sorts of things and how fast they uh, replicate. So they implanted all three of those the first time. We got a positive pregnancy test, and then there was no live heartbeat. So that took care of four of them. The next time we thawed the remaining three, again, we had one with a double nuclei. And then we had two, um, again, average quality embryos. One was very fragmented, so the cells were not matching up. And then one, it was slow to develop, so it, it had not replicated it as many times as they wanted it to, or the cells divided. Um, but they were perfectly symmetrical cells. And I remember being so scared the day they transferred them in because I had been through this once, and that was my last bit of hope, those two embryos being implanted. And I remember the doctor saying, I have seen miracles before, and I have seen embryos turn into babies that were slow-growing, but perfect, and this embryo, and she pointed to the one that had was so symmetrical, she goes, "If this is perfect, it's beautiful. If it had just grown faster, so maybe once it's inside a uterus, 
and a womb, and maybe it will surprise us. Mm. And I believe that that's my daughter. Yeah. Why, why seven? Why? Well, maybe I should ask it differently. Why only seven? Okay, so when they give you the the fertility drugs that um, usually a woman releases um, if she's ovulating correctly, it's it's one embryo um, a month. I'm sorry, not embryo, one egg a month. And when they give you these uh, fertility drugs, it causes your um, ovaries to produce multiple eggs. And so they go in with this long needle and pull out the eggs. Um, And for me, the day that they did it, one ovary produced a lot of eggs, one ovary did not produce any. And so they were able to pull out nine eggs. When they um, when they um, in, fertilized them with my husband's sperm, seven of them took and continued to um, to develop, and two of them did not develop properly, so they were discarded immediately. So women, I mean, some women can get 20 eggs on a cycle. So it really depends on the woman's body. For me, it was just we got nine and seven of them fertilized. And by the sounds of things, you got nine, you were lucky to get that. Yes. Well, and again, it happened very fast. I was, I literally was about an eight-week process from when I, found out my cancer was back to when I checked into the hospital and let them operate. And during those eight weeks, I had to find a a, a doctor that was willing to help me with fertility. I had to convince them that they should help me, that it was ethically okay because, you know, depending on the type of cancer, there's, you know, lots of controversy about if they should give you fertility treatment or not because you're upping your um, estrogen, and for me, my cancer um, had an estrogen component to it. So, you know, doctors don't want to do any harm to you. And so, you know, it was this big gray area of if they should, and I was getting lots of warnings that maybe it wasn't safe, um, but I was just determined that I would not let them operate if if I did not try to harvest eggs. And so it just, it happened really fast, and even some of the normal tests they would have done um, before they go ahead and do a harvest, we had to sort of forego because there wasn't time for them. And we had to just assume that I was a healthy, you know, except for cancer, I was a healthy, fertile 29-year-old and 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 give it a shot. You mentioned uh, a word in, in what you were just saying, uh, ethics, that... Uh, yeah. That is an interesting word, especially now when we're hearing all of this stuff about women's rights and reproductive rights and this, that, and the other thing, and Planned Parenthood and gynecological examinations and breast cancer examinations and, uh, you know, the whole nine yards. And then you have the thing about uh, abortion and you have uh, all this stuff that's going on. And I'm just wondering... Where does all of this that you've gone through fit into this great cosmic discussion of all these things and all these people that are so much in some cases feel that uh, they have the right to make the decision for you? Where where are you with all of that? I will tell you, I honestly believe that no one has the right to make a decision for another person. So I am very much um, in, you know, believe in 
pro-choice and a woman's right to contraceptives and a woman's right to make decisions on her body. I actually recently had the opportunity to be on the Huffington Post Live to uh, talk about and debate the first uterus transplant that um, happened over in Europe. They actually transplanted two uteruses from mothers into their adult children um, one who was born without a uterus and one who had cervical cancer like me. And there was this whole conversation about if it was ethical. And so I really believe that every person should have the right to decide what to do with their own body. And I know for me, like I said, I didn't always know I wanted to have children. In fact, Growing up in a very dysfunctional family, my mom left when I was three to drive tractor trailers, and I was raised by my dad, who was very ill, and my grandmother. The thought of parent being a parent and motherhood scared me to death. So I always thought, you know, it's something I'll think about later, until I had cancer. And then the first time I was battling, I was battling for my right. I didn't want a doctor telling me I couldn't do it. I had to give them my uterus. It really, for me, that first battle was about my choice. No one was going to tell me what to do. The second time around, I I had had, you know, many more experiences and grown and altered my my opinion, and I really then knew I wanted to be a mother, and I wanted to fight for the ability to have a child. And so, you know, the thing I say is that we are each made up of our experiences in life, and no two people's experience are the same. And therefore, our values and our perspectives are not going to be the same. There's going to be individual variances, and each person should be allowed to make the decisions that are right for them. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, I, you know, I, I've had I've had all kinds of discussions with any number of people with regard to this. But um, it, it just seems to me, and, uh, and here I am, I'm talking about politics, which I don't like to do. But I don't know, maybe this isn't politics as much as it's uh, people's rights. There's all all kinds of rights talk going on with regard to gun rights and this right and that right. And when does your right supersede my right and all this garbage that's going on? But the fact is, as I see it, and, and as having... Women in my life at every turn, certainly an, a, a woman, uh, my 90-year-old mother is still with us. I've got Deborah. I've got my daughter. I've got two granddaughters. I even have a female dog. Uh, <laughs> you but, love the ladies. Yeah, well, yes. But uh, the the point being, who am I as a fat white man? <laughs> what gives What gives me the right to dictate to any of these ladies, whether I agree with them or not, uh, or to you or any of the people that you've met and, and have known over your course of your, uh, your journey, who am I to make that decision? Who am I to play God? And just because somebody says A, then I have to go along with A, I don't buy it. I agree with you so much. I mean, it, I just, this is a subject I'm so passionate about, women's health, women's rights. And and it makes me crazy when you see a lot of male 
uh, lawmakers and up there telling a woman what we should do with our body. And, I mean, Mm -hmm. even for me, you know, another woman carried my child, and I've heard women that in that situation dictate what you're going to eat during the day while you're carrying my child and what you're going to do and how many times you're going to exercise. And i got to tell you, my point of it was, here was a woman that had carried three children before me, er, Mm -hmm. before my child, three healthy births. Who the heck am I to tell her what to do with a pregnancy? Mm-hmm. I was learning from her. I was, she'd ask me what I wanted to do, and I'd be like, whew, whatever you, 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 you know about it, right? You know your body. You know what you're capable of. So I'm going to stand back and let you lead here. And I just think that there needs to be more of that. People should be able to decide what is right for them and their body. I agree. I absolutely agree. It's... Uh... There are, there are too many big things in this world to to be decided to start messing with uh, things of uh, individuals making their own decisions and so on and so forth. Uh, it doesn't, you know. Here, this is something that Deborah has brought up in, in conversations. We have these people saying we have to, we can't allow them to have birth control. Uh, every child has to be uh, the first first heartbeat is is at where life begins. Uh, okay, that's fine. Then why don't you give them a social security number right then? Right. Uh, uh, so if, if that's all okay, but then again, if and if the woman cannot afford to or or for whatever reason is not going to bring that child up and puts that child up for adoption, how many of these wise actors are going to step forward and say, "I'll take that child"? Right. They're not going to – where's the line forming? There should be first in line to say, I'll take that child if they're the ones that are responsible for the fact fact that they have to have – that child has to be uh, uh, out there in the the first place when a woman had a different choice and she wasn't allowed to make it. It's her choice, not theirs. Absolutely, and I just believe there are enough big world problems and and community issues – that people could be focusing their time on instead of wasting time and money trying to tell their neighbor or the lady across the street what she should do with her body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, I will tell the lady across the street to keep her damn children off my lawn, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's different. That's not what you're not telling her about her body. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, I'm looking at the clock on the wall here, uh, Michelle, and, We've pretty much blown through an hour. Uh, oh my goodness! What a great conversation! It's uh, it's been a wonderful conversation, and it's been a joy to have it with you. And uh, how can uh, what do you do now? Are, are you are you involved in some of these causes that uh, and you're out there? You said you you were just uh, involved in something with Huffington Post. And are there ways for people to get hold of you or absolutely? Uh, so, so. You? give us give us your shameless self promotion. Okay, so. Um, my day job has nothing to do with uh, my passion for women's uh, rights and uh, prevention of cervical cancer and eliminating the stigma of HPV. Um, I'm a retail executive for 20 years, but um, my passion is doing exactly what we did today and educating people around them around the world about fertility rights and and cancer and HPV and I have a website at www.howilostmyuterus.com, and I speak um, 
to groups all over the country and write articles, and I have my book, How I Lost My Uterus and Found My Voice. And um, you can find me um, off my website there. And that, again, is howilostmyuterus.com. Yes, and I just, you know, before we leave, I just want to remember, uh, remind everybody that today, or this month, is National Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. And remember that HPV is a common virus, so there's no shame in the game. And we really need to start talking about our downstairs area um, and our, our female parts and you need to go for your checkup. I still say go annually because there's lots of things to talk about with your health care provider. But definitely every three years, get that pap test. If you're over 30, ask about the HPV test. Ask your doctor about the HPV vaccine. And I'm just going to throw out one more interesting fact. You know, statistics show that uh, one area of the population in senior commu- uh, communities, STDs are on the rise, and HPV is considered an STD or an STI, sexually transmitted infection. And so, you know, if you are newly divorced or or widowed and out there on the dating scene, even though the vaccine says it's for people up to 26, ask your health care provider. Insurance won't pay for it, but I know doctors are still giving it off-label to people outside that age group if they're newly out on the dating scene. So it's something that you can ask about. Mhm. Mhm. And uh it, the the fact that uh people in uh my age group uh have an increase uh, of of sexually spread diseases uh is is pretty amazing. But then again, <laughs> on the other hand, my age group was sex, drugs and rock and roll back in the day. So who's to say that it would we wouldn't go back to it? That's right. <laughs> That's right, and this is a do- this infection can lay dormant for years. So you could be married for twenty years and go to the doctor and find out you have HPV, and it doesn't mean that there's been any infidelity. It just means it was laying dormant, and now your immune system's not fighting it. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. Well, Michelle, you're giving us uh, all of us an awful lot to think about and uh, be concerned with and to take action on. So uh, I can thank you only one more time. Uh, that I'm glad you have come on the show, and uh, thank you for the great conversation. Excellent. Have a great day. Thank you. You do the same. Take care now. And this has been the Boomer the Babe Show on Blog Talk Radio. We're talking this morning with Michelle Whitlock, How I Lost My Uterus and Found My Voice is the name of her book. Google it, Amazon, uh, and her website is howilostmyuterus.com. All the information is there. Uh, Very interesting conversation about HPV, human human papillomavirus, and we hope that you uh, have gotten some good information from this program. We've tried to bring that good information every time we're on the air. So with that, we'll say goodbye. Enjoy the rest of your day. Uh, Look for us on Straight Down the Middle as we're going to be doing some broadcasts from uh, from the Phoenix Open at the Scottsdale TPC course, home of the 16th hole where there's more noise on a golf course than you ever hear in your life. So thank you very much again for listening. Take care. Have a great day, everybody. Bye now.
to the Movement Debate Show, where we bring interesting conversations to the world. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, where we tweet as Boomer and Babe, and on Facebook as Pete Peters 47. As always, you can friend us on Blog Talk Radio or sign up for our newsletter at boomerandthebabe.com. Email us at host at boomerthebabe.com with any of your comments. Remember, at 50, you're just getting started. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.